Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, and it takes just a few seconds. Then, during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, you enter other people, and when you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to lots of other amazing content too, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is electronically transmitted. This is consumed by human beings. Thank you for being here as always. It's good to be with you. I figured I would start today by reading you some tweets from my personal Twitter feed uh, at Brad Listy. Would that be weird? I've been trying to approach this particular Twitter feed as an exclusively literary project. Uh, this is how it makes sense to me. This is how I assuage my guilt over spending uh, time on it. Uh, meaning that the tweets from a compositional standpoint have to attempt to be funny or interesting in some way. It's sort of a joke writing exercise, really. And uh, I tend to generate, as you can imagine, some very mixed results. But I like it this way. It helps me make sense of it. Uh, I don't like to, you know, to use Twitter socially. That's what I've decided. Uh, I'm not tweeting at people. I'm not getting into conversations. I'm just trying to write uh, weird sentences from time to time as a matter of personal preference. So... Uh, here are some recent tweets of mine. Just entertained a strange Terrence Malick-esque internal monologue while watching a frozen burrito slowly rotate inside a microwave oven. 
laughed silently to myself while imagining myself laughing out loud. Would be funny slash interesting to organize all passengers on a 747 to pretend to be sleeping with their mouths open at the same time. Seems unbelievable that there has never been a television star who, as a kind of trademark, always appears on camera with his or her eyes closed. So, anyway, there you have it. There are some tweets. Are you excited? And, uh, on a related note, I was just online moments ago, rapidly surfing from one page to the next and scanning uh, various social media feeds, where I was reminded yet again how out of touch I tend to be with the culture compared, it seems, to most people. Uh, Like, no matter where I go, everywhere I look, almost... Uh, People are constantly talking about things that I have no frame of reference for. Uh, Whether it's a TV show or a popular novel or a red carpet appearance or some controversy involving uh, a musician, I don't care what it is, it almost always uh, seems to be the case that I haven't consumed this piece of culture yet. And I feel like now more than ever, uh, we live in this world that seems to reward the rapid ingestion of culture, if that makes sense. Like the more of it you can consume... And the faster you can consume it, and then the quicker you can say something about it, uh, the better off you are, somehow, or something. Like, the more followers you will have, the more in common you will have with said followers, and the more immediately relevant your banter will therefore be. But of course, this assumes, uh, or is dependent upon the notion that everybody's consuming the exact same stuff, roughly speaking, and, and this is what makes me anxious. It feels strange to me. Like, what are we doing here? Why is everybody consuming the exact same stuff? There's so much different stuff out there, and yet everybody seems to be consuming this narrow channel of stuff. Or, or maybe everybody isn't doing that, but that's the way it feels to me a lot of the time. And uh, to me, uh, as I think about it, it feels sort of like the pie-eating contest in Stand By Me, maybe. Like, that's how I, I think about the online ingestion and regurgitation of media and culture. Uh, It's like the pie-eating contest in Stand By Me. It feels like it's sort of analogous. It's like uh, if theoretically, if there were an origin story to each like cultural talk fest that happens, you would have Lardass Hogan, if you can remember him from the movie. You know, he's like eating all this pie, drinking this castor oil, ingesting all this culture until finally... Uh, he's had, you know, he's at his breaking point. He's had enough, and then he starts regurgitating the pie. Uh, at which point, everybody else starts regurgitating pie, and then it becomes this massive pie regurgitation scene. And that's how I feel when I stare at my screen and I see this stuff. I'm like, oh my god, everybody's regurgitating pie, and I didn't even know that there was a pie eating contest happening. You know what I mean? Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty 
And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Anyway, my guest today, ladies and gentlemen, is Amber Sparks. Her debut story collection, May We Shed These Human Bodies, is now available from Curbside Splendor. Very pleased to have her here on the program. She has been nominated for awards. She has won awards. She won the literary death match, for goodness sakes. And uh, she's a favorite in the indie lit community. So why don't we get going with it? This right here is my conversation with Amber Sparks. So the book release party is in Chicago tomorrow. So I'm just staying with my parents tonight um, before my husband and I head down there. So, uh, yeah, I'm actually holed up in my own, my old bedroom. It's kind of weird, actually. Is it, is it still the but, same? Did, you, did your parents like preserve it like a museum to your youth, or is it, has it changed? It's absolutely preserved, yes. Like, if you go through the desk, my old diaries are in there, and, you know my awards for spelling bees and things like that. It's, it's a little weird. It's like, it's like sleeping. You're sleeping with your husband in a shrine to your childhood self. That's sort of strange. <laughs> and it's really an idealized childhood self. It's not my actual childhood self because it's very sort of girly and, you know, frilly. And I was never really like that, but the bedroom was, so it's even more bizarre. So wait, so but, yeah. was your mother like trying to make you more of a girly girl than you actually were? I think it was just like, well, we don't really know what to do with your bedroom, and you're a girl, so let's put in, you know, frilly curtains and and pink things. And then my brother got, you know, baseball stuff on the wall. Yeah, so. you know what? That's it's so true. Like I'm I'm now thinking back to my bedroom, and like I had like the standard like poster of a Porsche on my wall. I'm like I'm not even a car person. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Yep. It's just like stock yep. decorations there, and it, you know, you wonder maybe when you're a kid, you don't have the wherewithal. Uh, to like make those kinds of decisions. Like, I don't feel like I was ever even consulted, nor did I really care, I guess, you know? Right, right. You weren't like, yeah, I do want a car as opposed to, you know, a doll or a train or something. Yeah, I just, I had no, I mean, I still have no interior design sense, but uh, I guess it started early for me. (laughs) Well, mine is very minimalistic now, and maybe this is why. Uh, maybe the frilly curtains did it for me. No, wait, but okay. So, so am I like, I, I've even said this on this show before that like, I, I have this strange desire to live in one of those glass houses with con- like polished concrete floors and like almost no furniture. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. That's and like, the exposed brick. Yeah. Yeah. Like all of that is my like ideal living environment. It'll never happen, but I just would love to live like that. You know, like when I look, I look at, I'll see these houses in like, you know, magazines or whatever. And, uh, you know, we'll like yeah. touch the page longingly. Yes. There's that, there's a house in, um, in, uh, uh, North by Northwest. I don't know if you know it. Um, if you can picture it offhand. Um, but there's this house, it's actually in, I think, North Dakota. And, uh, uh, it's like my ideal house. It's perfect. It's like this beautiful minimalistic house, like with a wall of glass and exposed brick. And it's like on the side of a cliff and it's amazing. But yes, I think it ran for, you know, millions and millions of dollars last time it sold. So in North Dakota, That's- 
Yeah, I think, or South Dakota. Maybe I think it's South Dakota. I can't remember. It's someplace really weird and unexpected where you would not picture some sort of, you know, 60s house to be, but there it is. There it is. The slightly warmer Dakota. Yes. (laughs) Um, uh, So, wait a minute. So, you live in Washington, D.C.? Did I read that correctly somewhere? Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. I I have lived there for about six and a half years now. How did you wind up there? Um, I went to grad school out there, uh, for politics. Um, and then I just, my husband works for the government and so we just ended up staying out there. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, So you have a political background in terms of your education at least? Uh, yes and no. Actually my, my original background, I'm, you know, a weirdo, but my original background is in theater. Um, and then, uh, I sort of had this, you know, early midlife epiphany where I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to do politics um, because my hero, Paul Wellstone, died, um, he, you know, senator in Minnesota um, or from Minnesota. And uh, so I went to the I went to the funeral or, and the, or the service and it was very, very moving. And I decided, oh, my God, I want to get involved in politics. I want to make a difference. So I went back to school um, or applied and went back to school in D.C. for political communication and then, of course, became very disillusioned with politics. And now there I am in D.C. knowing that I can't make a difference. Okay, okay. But, so we, uh, we should slow this down because, like, A, this feels sort of apropos because we're right in, like, the, the heart of the election season. And then, B, there's a lot of right. there's a lot of story to kind of unpack right there. Like, first of all, <laughs> um, uh, you know, you're, you're living in Madison, which is the capital city of Wisconsin. So I guess you had some proximity to... Um, at least state government as a child, like, did that inform you at all? And then, uh, you know, were either of your parents involved politically? Um, not, I mean, not, not to say not really. Um, I mean, my whole family has always been, you know, we come from a staunch democratic family. Like we never had anyone in my family who was Republican ever. Um, my grandpa, the first question he asked my husband when he met him um, was, you know, what, are you a Democrat or Republican? And he said, thank God. Um, and uh, so I guess everybody's always been a Democrat, but um, nobody was ever really politically involved necessarily. Um, not, no, not really. Okay. So then when you, and then Paul Wellstone, like how did you, how did you become, uh, you know, such a fan of his? Oh, well, I was in Minnesota at that time because I went to, I went to, so I lived here in Wisconsin with my parents, but then I moved to Minnesota to go to school in the Twin Cities. Um, and that's where I went to college. And so, um, where, where, at, is it University of Minnesota? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. University of Minnesota and, and, and Minneapolis. So wait, or Minneapolis, you, St. Paul. You, you lived in Madison and then you went to the University of Minnesota. Isn't that some like traitorous activity somehow? No, it's what everybody does. Well, not everybody, but uh, if you live in Madison, generally you don't you don't go to Madison. You know, you want to get out of get out of town. You want to go someplace else. Right. Um, so that was sort of like it was close enough. It's like five hours away, but you were definitely far enough away from the parents where you could, you know, do your own thing. Um, but yeah, Madison's lovely. I mean, I would have loved to go to school here too, but. Um, but yeah, no, we, so we ended up in Minnesota and, uh, and Paul Wellstone was, I mean, I, I got pretty politically involved in Minnesota. I worked on some campaigns and, um, you know, was somewhat active that way, um, even while I was doing theater. And, uh, 
And Paul Wellstone was just such an amazing human being. Everybody in Minnesota just loved him. Well, not everybody, I guess. <laughs> I guess 50 some percent of Minnesota. So, okay. So, but what sparked you to like actually start volunteering and, and participating in the process? Because, uh, you know, uh, I, feel, I mean, I guess it's not that unusual and particularly in recent, mm-hmm. in the recent past, you know, it, it doesn't feel as unusual, but it is still sort of a leap to make. I think a lot of people are totally disillusioned from uh, when it comes to politics and, and, you know, for good reason oftentimes, but yeah. what, what was it that sort of pushed you into actually participating? Um, you know, I, I, I can't even say offhand for sure, but I, I think it was probably, uh, my husband who was actually my, just my friend at the time, um, my good friend. Uh, but he was, he's sort of always been more involved in politics. Um, he studied at school or, you know, international relations and politics. And he, um, and he was involved in some, and he got involved in like a city council campaign. So I kind of went along and helped with that a little bit and sort of from there got more politically involved. So I think it was, I think it was his fault. I blame him. Okay. Yeah. That's not, that's convenient. We can blame him. And then you, uh, you get to, uh, Washington and you go to school where, and, and you studied what political communications you said. Mm, uh, I, I was, and so I did that at grad school at, um, George Washington university out in DC. Okay. Well, and when you say political communications, like what it makes me think of is the, uh, like my own fascination with politics, which is pretty, uh, I think it's pretty intense, at least in, in terms of the amount of information I consume, uh, relative mm-hmm. to politics, which I think I have a higher tolerance for than a lot of people because I can read, <laughs> I can, I can read endlessly about it. And I can also ingest cable news, which requires like a certain, uh, sense of masochism, I think. Um, yeah. But oh, I, absolutely. Yeah. But I think like when I, you know, there's a part of me that watches it, uh, or reads about it, uh, almost like a sports fan, which is a horribly reductive way to think of it. But I, I do think there's some part of it where I'm just like the, the battle interests me somehow, you know, somehow. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. On kind of a, cr- but it's kind of a crude level, especially when there's like such, um, serious, uh, I think serious stakes involved oftentimes, but the, the well, element yeah. of it that might like tie us back into writing a little bit and the element of it that I don't think maybe gets talked about uh, quite so much is how politics functions at the level of language, like how much of it is centered on mastery of language and messaging. And I'm assuming that when you went and got your degree in political communications, I mean, it sounds like what you're essentially getting is a degree in uh, how to message or how to spin or I mean, is that, is that correct? That is exactly right. Actually. And that was the part that interested me. Um, but even back then too, you know, thinking about Orwell, um, and uh, some of the other folks that have written about the politi- you know, how you politicize language and how you use it um, in propaganda or in messaging, um, I always found that really interesting. So I actually wanted to do speech writing. Um, that was the part that I thought was was the coolest thing to do, um, and it sort of fit in with my writing background. Um, and I didn't really, I didn't end up doing too much of that, but I do work. I work at actually, I work at a labor union now, and I do. Um, I do a lot of messaging. That's what I do. Um, it's more, I'm the new media manager, so it's more um, online communications, but it's the same thing. It's okay. all language. It's all message. Yeah, and like compressing language and making like complex things clear and persuasion. And I don't know, I can find myself, like this is how maybe uh, steeped or overly saturated I am with this stuff, but I can find myself like being very impressed with like 
a well-crafted soundbite. Even if I disagree with it, I'll be like, Ooh, that's good. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, that's where you see, that's where, you know, you're a political junkie. Like you were saying earlier, it's, you sort of, you know, most people, you know, hear something they don't agree with and they just become disgusted and sort of turn it off and where you can actually sort of get to a level where you appreciate it, even though you hate it, where you can, you know, appreciate these guys for their mastery, even though you hate everything about what they're saying. That is, that's when you know you're in trouble. I have a problem. Well, and this is the other thing that I find <laughs> increasingly with my, uh, you know, feelings about politics and my thinking about politics is that uh, I don't, I mean, I, I guess I, I do have strong feelings about some things, but increasingly less. Like I, I find myself like sort of maddeningly flexible or maddeningly, uh, maybe flexible is too generous of a word, just maddeningly unsure of my own mind. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I always, I, I, I have a hard time feeling conviction about a lot of things and can easily be persuaded by, uh, you know, a, a, a skilled communicator. Do you know what I'm saying? So like if I'm reading some essay or some sort of op-ed by somebody, um, on one side of the line, I can read it and be like, yes. And I can feel a sense of strong conviction about it. And then I can read a counterpoint, uh, that seems, you know, equally as intelligent or, or, you know, do you know what I'm saying? And I can find myself going, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you sound like my dream audience. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just, my mind is putty and I feel like, I feel like this, here's what I feel like. I've actually been thinking about this this week like quietly to myself, wondering if, if I have a problem because I don't have the ability to like clearly and strongly assert what I believe without then quickly like countering it or wondering about it. And I feel like our culture tends to reward certainty. Do you know what I'm saying? Like when you watch these talking oh, heads yeah, on, yeah, yeah. When, you, when you watch these talking heads on cable news or you read the pundits, you know, writing their op-eds, like there's just so much strength of opinion and, and there's a lot of bluster and it's like our culture tends to reward that. But what I long for is to hear like a pundit on TV, just be like, I, I just don't know. I guess it could be one or, you know, I want someone to voice confusion, you know, articulate. Well, right. I mean, like, you can, you can be wrong, right? Or I mean, you can't be wrong. That's the thing. You, you can, you, you, you can't change your mind. I guess I should I should rephrase that. No, you can be wrong, but you can't change your mind. Even if you're wrong, you have to stick to your wrongness and be certain about it. Um, that's, I think, what we've sort of, what our political discourse has sort of become, unfortunately. And that's why, of course, it's so polarized, right? I mean, if more people were like you, I think that would actually be a good thing for the country. If people were sort of thinking about, what do I think about this issue? And has my mind changed about it? And you know, what are the nuances around it as opposed to like, I am in this camp or I am in that camp and, you know, here we are and we will never shift an inch. I think that's horrible for the country and we've gotten to be so much that way. Yeah, it's insane. It's, it's, it kind of, kind of makes you crazy in the head. And so I guess to like then transition into uh, more literary pursuits, like did you find yourself drifting into uh, writing uh, creatively as an antidote to the kind of ickiness of politics? Do you find it like a necessary, <laughs> do you find it like a necessary counterbalance or some sort of medicine? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I, I you know, I've always written, um, my whole life and I, and I think it's always been, it's always been a release to some extent. Um, but yeah, it, it has been an especially nice release, um, sort of working on the things I work on. And obviously I, you know, I love what I do, um, during the day and it's, I think it's a great cause. Um, but then it's, you know, very stressful also. And then you go home at night and you can just sort of, 
write in a completely different way, in a completely different realm about completely different things. Um, you know, and that's, it's, it's a huge relief, I think. Yeah. Well, no, and it's like, I think about politics too. And I think about working in it and working for uh, a cause and, and feeling good about it. But at the same time, when I think about, uh, when I think about, I don't want to say dogma because that's too strong of a word, but I, I guess the word, that I'm, the, the word that I'm ultimately driving at is anger. And by that, I mean, when I look at my computer screen during the day, whether I'm reading news sites or I'm looking at social media, like people are so, mm-hmm. pi- people are so pissed off. <laughs> and, oh yeah. So, oh yeah. So I'm wondering, uh, where that comes from. I think maybe, you know, obviously some of it's authentic and it's issue driven and everything else, but sometimes I think it's like growing out of just a more general feeling of just being pissed off as a human being uh, in ways that you might not even understand. And it just feels like there's just a lot of crazy anger and, uh, coming from both sides. And I'm wondering, like, do you ever find yourself like enraged and do you, how do you handle that? <laughs> it's like every single day I work in labor. So <laughs> yes. Um, do, do you like med- oh my God, do you meditate have, you know, or anything? Do you do like stress relief? No. <laughs> no um, my, I mean, re- reading is pro- reading and writing. That's my stress, my stress relief. I mean, it's, it's um, especially reading, like coming home and just getting completely out of it and reading something that is, has nothing to do with politics. Um, that that's, that's the only stress relief. I've never really been able to like meditate or do yoga or do any of that, you know, breathing exercises. Like none of that stuff really works for me. I actually just get more angry. Um, because you know, I sit there and I try to meditate and I can't do it right. And it just makes me angrier. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, the thing that I sort of have to do is just, is just, you know, go home, have a beer, you know, booze is, is a nice, um, (laughs) stress relief also. (laughs) And then, just open a book and, and read, um, or start writing and just get all of it out. Well, um, because you know, yeah, my days are stressful. Well, and the irony though, is that I think reading is a form of med- Like I always argue that like things like reading, uh, that's a form of meditation. Cause it's just, you're, you're, you're fixing your attention on something at least. And then, uh, you can even take it further and say that like smoking is meditation. It just involves 4,000 toxic chemicals. You know, it's constant. <laughs> That's true. I mean, when people, the less healthy form of meditation. Yeah. I mean, when, when people are taking smoke breaks during the day at their corporate jobs, like they're standing outside, uh, you know, in some alley, just like having like a quiet moment of breathing. And it's basically meditation. Oh, yeah. You're just getting, you know, lung cancer while you do it. That is very true. <laughs> um, so, what? <clears throat> when did you have, or can you point to some, uh, uh, you know, like moment of epiphany where you were studying uh, political communications and then shifted and decided to start? Uh, I, I don't know. Did, I guess you haven't really shifted because you're still working the union job during the day. But I mean, did you? When did you realize right. that it wasn't going to be enough to just do politics? I guess that was probably, it was probably pretty soon after I started working and I don't really know if it was even, if it, it was even an epiphany or anything like that. I really, so before I came out here, I worked, you know, I've always, one of the reasons I work in labor is because I genuinely, I mean, to get corny for a second, I genuinely believe in, you know, working families, working people, um, supporting the people that, you know, the 99% in this country. And, um, you know, I, I come from a place where I've always had jobs, you know, two jobs at a time, putting myself through school. 
so um, for years when I was sort of doing all that and, you know, doing theater and, and not really making any money and having to work, you know, all these nights and weekends, I just like for five years, basically of my life, I did not write. I didn't have any time um, to do it. And I would come home, you know, late at night and just be physically exhausted and mentally exhausted and I couldn't do it. Um, so when I came out here, uh, all of a sudden I had, you know, a, a little bit of leisure time. I wasn't working nights and weekends so much. Um, and so I just started sort of naturally, I picked it up and started writing again. Um, so it didn't necessarily have anything to do with my disillusion with politics. It was just more, um, more, I had time. Yeah, and I mean, my brain was functioning again. So were you were you made anxious by the fact that you didn't have writing time? Or was it just something you were kind of resigned to? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, was that something that like loomed over you? Or did you just kind of detach from it for those five years and then come back to it when you could? I was just totally detached from it. I thought I would never write again, actually. Um, and I was very sad about that. But I was kind of like... You know, I, I used to be in I used to be in bands, and then you know, when my last band broke up, it was kind of like, okay, well, that's a thing I'll probably never do again, and I haven't. Um, so I kind of thought that it would be like that, you know, and uh, I didn't realize that it was. Now I realize that it's something that I'll never be able to not do. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, at the time, I just sort of gave up on it. I mean, to be, you know, that was not a. It was not a super happy time anyway, um, because. You know, that was sort of after 9-11 and, you know, my husband and I had no money at all. Um, and we were both working like crazy and he was in school and we never saw each other. And, you know, it was just, um, it was sort of a depressing time anyway. So it was sort of like, well, here's one more depressing piece of that depressing time. <laughs> um, I can't write either. So that's great. And just think of, what, um, think of what a depressing novel you would have written during that time. It would have been awesome. Oh God. <laughs> I, you know, uh, it would have been the worst piece of shit ever. I mean, I'm sure it would have been all about how I couldn't write because I had to work some, you know, menial job. It would well, have been terrible. And, and you said you were in bands. So you've done a lot. You've done theater, you're writing books, and you're also in, in a musician? Uh, yeah, yeah, I used to be. I mean, I used to, I used to play keys and sing. Um, you, you do, I mean, all my, all my bands were, I would play keys, keyboard, oh, okay. and sing. Uh -huh. um, I, you know, I was in this, like, really awful emo band in college, and then um, I was in a band with one, one of my friends, um, a folk, kind of a folk band, um, I mean, none of these bands were, you know, none of us, no, we weren't stellar or anything. These were not bands that were going to, going to make it big or anything. So. Did, you, did you ever like perform barefoot in the folk out in the folk band? I feel like there's a lot of that. I, I'm made uncomfortable when there's like the lead singers barefoot. <laughs> no, actually, I hate when people are barefoot. Yeah, I don't it's like It's like that. one of my biggest pet peeves. There are bugs. There yeah, are, um, yeah, there's, there's, you know, I don't there like that either. I don't like glass, it. There's glass, broken glass. And so, uh, what were some of the names of your songs in this emo band? Can you share some? Oh God, I don't even remember them anymore. Um, the, I remember the well. The only thing I have remember is the name of the band, which was Tabloid Footprints. It was. It was. Thank God, all of these things happened before the before the internets were were big. Oh, um, you know what? Before I've, the advent of YouTube. Yeah, I was going to say. Like, I think back to my college days, and I think about college you know, people in college now with the, in the era of uh, the internet and social media and cell phone cameras and stuff. And if all the, the stupid stuff that I had done when I was nineteen years old were somehow captured on video and were living somewhere on a computer, I would be terrified. <laughs> you know? Oh 
Oh God, I know. I can't even imagine. I mean, um, no, I, th- I think I'm so happy every single day that there weren't like camera phones when I was in college. So, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm especially glad when I think about some of the bands that I did and some of the, some of the theater performances that I did, uh, some of the experimental theater that I did, um, <laughs> which I thought was, you know, really awesome at the time. And now I think back and cringe and thank God there was no YouTube. Yeah, there should be a doc. There's, there should be a documentary made about like bad experimental theater at the college level. <laughs> I, I feel like that would be really funny. Oh, it would be a rich subject. That's for sure. There, there is so much of it. Uh, did you ever do theater? No, no, I never did. I mean, I can't sing to save my life, and I just—I'm not a per—I'm not a performer. Like, uh, you know, like this is as, this is as close as I can get. I think doing uh, like a, essentially radio. You know, like I'm comfortable doing that. But <laughs> like doing live readings makes me a little bit edgy, though. I can put, you know, I can do it if, yeah. I'm, if I'm pushed. And then the thought of being on stage uh, or being in front of the camera uh, does not appeal to me. You know. Well, that was always that. That was a nice thing about. Um you know, actually starting to do readings is that I never had to be really nervous. Like I know a lot of people are, I mean, I was always a little bit nervous, but thank God I had the theater background. So it sort of made it fairly easy to get up there. And especially cause I wasn't, I didn't even have to memorize anything. I could read it off of a page, which yeah. was, you know, amazing. So you're making me sound like a, you know, complete idiot by comparison. That was not my intention. <laughs> I know. I know. I just, <laughs> You're like, yeah, you just have to stand there and read off a piece of paper. You make it sound so easy. But uh, I think part of my part of my discomfort is just pure nerves. And then the other part of it is, is some sort I feel sort of conflicted about whether or not it's, uh, you know, what, what am I doing up there reading my own work? I don't know. I don't know why it bothers me. But I feel a sense of, uh, I don't know, it's kind of masturbatory or weird to do that. I, I feel like reading should be done in, in private and quiet or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Well, I think that's good. For that kind of self-awareness is probably better. I, I think there's there's definitely some part of me, and I think most performers that that is just utterly missing that self-awareness. So you know, there have been many times that I'm sure I've embarrassed myself in all kinds of ways on the stage. Yeah, but you know, it's like life is short. I, I think like this is the thing though. I, this is my brain right here, and it kind of it's kind of tied to what I was talking about earlier with with the you know the political stuff is that it's a muddle. Cause I'll go through that sort of thought, like thought process and I've done, I'll do it over and over again in cycles where I'll say, Oh, I feel weird about this. I'm conflicted about whether or not uh, this is even a, you know, something I should be doing or what's the point of this. And I feel weird. <laughs> and then I'll be like, Oh God, you're so lame. Just relax and just go read out, you know, off of a piece of paper and it's fine. And life is short. And then I'll start all over again. Like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> it sounds like a Woody Allen film. Oh, it sounds terrible. You know, I need medication. <laughs> Um, so anyway, like the other thing I want to talk about, and then I guess we can move on to other things, but you know, the fact that you were in bands interests me because that's, I think that's a fantasy of just about everybody who's never been in a band, just, just to be in a band would be fun. But as I get older and I'm now in, you know, my late thirties, I guess you could say, uh, Mm -hmm. it starts, I start to realize how small the window is for, uh, music and for rock and roll and stuff like that in particular, it's a very young thing and it's hard for, it's, it's just really hard for a band to age. And I find myself as I get older, looking at the trappings of like rock stardom and like the outfits and the posturing and the haircuts and the, like, it just starts to seem ridiculous to me 
after a while. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so here we go again. Like, I'm conflicted. Does this mean I'm just getting <laughs> old and stodgy or does this mean that it's really ridiculous? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, is it moving away from me or am I moving away from it? Or I guess is it both? But do you see what I'm saying? I think it's probably, yeah, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, I um, I definitely do not, you know, I used to go to tons of concerts and I, I don't anymore. I hardly ever go. And when I do, I always feel, you know, I feel like the old man in the room, um, you know, so to speak. Um, I always feel like everyone there is like so, so young and they get something that I just don't get. And yeah, definitely the trappings start to seem very Baroque and weird and sort of, um, you know, very performance-y. And uh, it, it, I think it does move away from you a little bit the older that you get. I think you, I think it sort of has to. I find myself liking a lot more, um, you know, a lot more, like I've always loved David Bowie, but I find myself listening to a lot more Bowie and a lot more Stones. And I don't know why that is. I feel like sometimes when I listen to stuff that, you know, the young kids are listening to, because I'm in my mid-30s too. And um, I feel like, Oh, I shouldn't be listening to this. I'm. This is, you know, I'm. I'm. I seem really lame right now. Like I'm sitting there all alone in my house listening to it, and I'm like, this is lame that I'm listening to this because that's what the kids are listening to. Okay, but so. yeah, okay. And so I've had that same thought, but then I, 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 I also feel like when I'm talking to some, uh, you know, in my youth, especially, I remember like talking to people who were probably in their mid to late thirties or who were, you know, maybe even older. And I remember hearing them. I remember hearing them talk about how, like, you know, music's not as good as it used to be, and how they don't even listen to the news. You know what I'm right. saying? And I always sort of resented that. And I always felt like, you know, people who remain stuck and who don't embrace anything new, who get to a certain age and start to like, sort of like live exclusively in the past, um, are living kind of a set in a sad way, you know? And so I always sort of, I always sort of resolved to never be like that. But at the same time, I do not devour new music the way that I used to, um, to say, I do not go to concerts the way that I used to, to say the least. And a lot of this is circumstantial, but what's interesting is that, you know, you talk about listening to these artists, um, who have aged well, a guy like David Bowie, for instance, who, you know, yeah. re- remains interesting, uh, and you know, to listen to even as you know his work progresses through the years, and he's like what sixty or something now. Um, yeah, yeah. But the irony uh, is that this is a guy who listens to everything, and another guy that yeah. comes to mind too is like David Byrne, uh, Bob Dylan yeah. is that way. Like all of these, all of these artists who have remained relevant into their old age. Um, you know, I think part of why they remain relevant is the fact that they continue to remain open. And they continue. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. 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 Bowie listening to Arcade Fire and and um. yeah, like, I feel like nothing gets by those people. And I think like as far as uh, you know reading goes, I think the exact same thing holds true. I don't think it's exclusive to music. I think it's, it's sort of a, applicable in any field uh, and in any you know any art that if you if you shut yourself off from new and vital work and kind of from where the energy is is flowing, uh, it's only going to hurt you. I think. No, I think that's true. Um, and I did, I was going to say, I, do, I did feel very relieved the other day because I saw, you know, maybe a month ago or something, Pitchfork came out with like their, you know, 20 best albums of the last 10 years. Or I think it was something like that or 100 best, I forget what it was. But anyway, I, I had actually heard, uh, or not heard of, but I actually listened to and enjoyed and had some of my favorite music on there. Um, and knew most of the bands at least. And I was like, Oh, thank God. Okay. I'm not, I was actually scared to click the link because I felt like I would feel so irrelevant at that point. But I actually 
I think I've kept up fairly well, which made me feel a little bit happy. Yeah, no, it's an, <laughs> a little bit less. It's, yeah, it's an achievement. You know, I I I remember distinctly the day that I got because like you know I uh, was a subscriber to Rolling Stone for years and years and years, and I remember distinctly the day that I went to my mailbox. And I took the Rolling Stone out of the mailbox, and I didn't know who the artist was on the cover. <laughs> yep. Uh, and I was like, "Oh yes. shit!" You know, like something's changed. <laughs> uh, yeah. Although, uh, of course, Rolling Stone has changed too. That's, so that's right. You that's know, right. That's a whole different thing. In my defense, I should be reading Pitchfork anyway. <laughs> that's right. So, what although about, I'm, I, I have. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, what about like literature, you know, just to sort of bend it back around, like in terms of what you ingest, you know, obviously there's always going to be old favorites. Um, but do you mm-hmm. find, do you find yourself trying hard to stay current with what people or, you know, what your contemporaries are writing? Oh yeah. And, and I think, I think it's, I think it's really exciting what's happening obviously in, in, um, literature right now. And, so, so for me, obviously, a lot of what I, a lot of what I love, like anybody, is, is you know, I love Nabokov and I love Shakespeare and I love, um, you know, Dostoevsky and I love a lot of classic literature. Um, that's what my background is, and I'm, you know, very grounded in that. But um, at the same time, you know, there's so much exciting happening right now. Um, you know, Blake Butler, Matt Bell, Lindsay Hunter, Shane Jones. Um, Oh, you know, everything that Mudlush's press is doing, um, uh, uh, there's so much exciting stuff happening right now. So, um, well, so how do, I but, definitely am. But how did you find all that stuff? I'm interested to know. Like, is it just a product of being online yeah. or is it a product of friends that you have who introduced you? Like, how, how did it happen? Yeah, um, so, yeah, because, right, obviously you're not just going to know about it. Um, so it's – I actually – uh, took an online, once I started writing again, um, I, you know, was kind of, of course, at that time I found, oh, writing has gone online. How exciting. Um, cause you know, previous to that, I hadn't, you know, you were still mailing stuff into, you know, whatever press it was or whatever magazine. Um, and, uh, so I started sort of looking around online and I was reading things like HTML giant and, um, you know, some literary blogs like that. And, I found Barrel House magazine, and uh, Dave Housley, who's one of the guys who works for Barrel House, um, was actually doing an online workshop, um, which actually was he was uh, out of a place in D.C. Um, that he was doing that. But um, so I took the workshop. It was like a fiction, you know, short stories thing because I was like, well, I need some ground. I need to, you know, get back into this, and I need some somebody to sort of make me write. And, you know, have some set some deadlines. So I did that and um, got to, you know, be talking to him and be friends with him. And he was just an amazing font of uh, knowledge of everything to do with the sort of indie lit scene. Um, he told me, you know, blogs to go to. And he told me, you know, he was the person who introduced me to both Blake Butler and Matt Bell's writing, um, which has been hugely influential to me. Um, he, you know, basically gave me all kinds of information that I sort of needed to know told me where all the online magazines were and everything. And that's how I really sort of got started um, this time around. And so then, yeah. So then is that mostly what you read now or, you know, do you have some sort of balance between the old and the new or is most of what you read happening online? And then, you know, most of the books that you wind up picking up the product of those uh, like online, uh, you know, adventures. 
know, I'd say it's about, I'd say it's probably 50, 50. Um, you know, I, I definitely still, still am always reading, um, older stuff too, um, classic literature. Um, and you know, then I spend about half my time reading newer stuff. Um, and I'm usually reading, I'm always usually reading like three or four books at once, which is terrible, but, um, yeah, I do that usually too. At least- I do that too. It's like, always <laughs> like they're, yeah, they're piled on my nightstand and you know, it's like sort of a schizophrenic way to read. Yes, it, it is. And it's probably terrible, but you know, it's sort of, it makes me feel somehow like I'm, like I'm reading more or getting more done. I don't know. Um, so I'm usually always reading like a history book, you know, a, a more contemporary fiction book. Um, then, you know, something a little bit older, more classic, and then poetry. <laughs> so it's, it's a little crazy. But yeah, I try to, I try really hard to keep up with everything. And there's so much and everybody, you know, I swear to God, one of my friends constantly has a book coming out every, every other day. But, um, you know, there's always so much good stuff coming out that it's, it's hard to keep up, but I try. Do you, do you, do you look at this as a way to make a living? Do you, you have any hopes of making a living with your fiction? Is it something that you... Oh, no. No, no, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I mean, you know, wouldn't that be lovely? But um, no, I think, you know, I hope to just keep having it be a fun thing to do. And I hope that people read it because, you know, I believe in it and I, you know, wouldn't be doing it if I didn't. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of making money, no. Okay, so that's interesting. So when you go to your work, you know, during the day, which is uh, rewarding and energizing, but also difficult and frustrating and everything, then you, you know, whenever you you come home and write, or maybe you write before work, or you write on the weekends, when you get to the actual creative part of your life, do you struggle with it? Or is it something that like, when compared to the the rigors of your day job is, is more like a relief? It sort of depends on what I'm working on. Um, you know, I, I would say that most, a lot of nights it's, I'm, I'm just too brain dead by the time I come home. I, you know, I just can't, I can't really write. Um, but some nights it is kind of a nice relief um, to come home and just write, you know, work on a short story or something like that. Um, and, but mostly what I do is on the weekends. Um which is my, I have to say, my husband is pretty awesome in that he just kind of like gives me the weekend. He gives me both those days. He loves to read. So he'll just, you know, be reading and I'll be working on my writing, um, you know, and I'll work for like five or six hours at a time. Um, so that's when I get most of it done. I'm not, I wish I, I have friends that write in the morning, get up very early and write. And I wish I could be one of those people, but I never, ever will be. Oh my God. I mean, I don't get up until I absolutely have to. And I don't even function properly in the morning as a human being <laughs> until at least 10 o'clock. So yeah, it's, I, yeah I, that's not happening. I was just talking to David Abrams and he was, he was telling me that he gets up at like three thirty every morning and it's just, it's a crazy oh, schedule. God. Yeah. And, yeah. I think that's amazing. If you can do it, I, I am definitely a night person. A lot of times I'll write, actually my husband will fall asleep. Um, and I'll, I'll write for a couple more hours late into the, late at night into the early morning hours if I feel like I'm really motivated. Now, and, and what about the actual publication process? Like I'm, I'm assuming you've gone through submission and rejection processes before. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> you mean in regards to short stories or, or the book? Well, both. But I mean, you know, you, like every writer has to kind of take their, their lumps at some point, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, God. I, and I, 
well, I like, cause I was an idiot when I started submitting, um, you know, I suppose most writers probably are, but you know, I was like, I'm going to send my story to the New Yorker and Atlantic monthly and, you know, a bunch of other magazines. And surely one of them will recognize my genius and publish this thing that is so sort of like Lori Moore, but not good. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, it, that was not happening. Um, so I got rejected a ton. And then, uh, you know, once I started submitting to some online things, then, um, you know, then I started to have a little bit more success because the slush pile is just a little bit smaller. So people can actually see what you're doing and, and have some appreciation for it. Um, but it took a good three years before I got my first story published from the time I started submitting. Okay. So yeah, that, 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 like you look back on that as basically your apprentice years. And then, uh, when did you finally break through? What was the first acceptance? Uh, the first acceptance was necessary fiction. Steve Himmer, uh, took a piece of mine called the chemistry of objects, which is actually in the book. Um, and, uh, not only did he take it, but he said, you know, it was marvelous and he, you know, gushed over it. And that was just, Amazing. I was, I think I probably bought a bottle of wine and celebrated that night because, um, it was the first, that was the first real acceptance. So I think I'd been published in my school, you know, MFA journal or something, but. (laughs) Well, but you know, I think that this is what I, uh, I often advocate or, you know, I try to advocate whenever I hear about somebody having a publishing success, whether it's a book that gets accepted or they get some story accepted by some fancy magazine or something. But when you're working as a writer and you're going through all of these quiet, uh, months and weeks and years where you're sort of toiling uh, in isolation, trying to put together uh, a collection or a novel or whatever it is, and then finally you get the thing done, and then you go through the sales process and or, or you submit it for uh, publication somewhere, and finally you get a yes. You need to mark that moment. I mean, you, like as a writer, when you think about <laughs> when you think about how much time you spend toiling versus like the the moments of actual breakthrough or you know victory. You know the, the ratio. Oh, yeah. the, the ratio is pretty skewed, so it's important to kind of, you know, at least take a moment to appreciate the fact that it worked. You know. Uh, oh, exactly, exactly. And any excuse to like go out for dinner and have a drink is, you know, right, is an excuse that I'll take advantage of. So yes. <laughs> so okay. So what is your? Do you have a plan? Like, do you think that you're going to just keep doing your stories and publishing them online, and then hopefully eventually amassing enough for a collection, or you're working on a novel or anything like that? Um, so, well, right now, so the collect, so the collection, you know, is coming out, um, uh, the first collection, of course, is coming out in a few days. Um, the release party is actually tomorrow in Chicago, (laughs) which is crazy. Um, and then I think I've already got maybe enough stories for another collection, uh, put together. Um, and I'm just kind of working on those. Um, so that's sort of the plan is to do another collection and then, I'm also, I just started working on a novel. So um, eventually I'd like to do something like that too. I actually was working on a novel um, for the last year. Um, and then I just, I just finally flushed it. You flushed um, it. I put it away. I did. I, I killed my first novel. What was the, what was that day like? like? What was it? I mean, did you just finally just say fuck it and delete it or what did, what did you do? I didn't delete it. I sort of, you know, put it in my in my little mental drawer. Um, but I'm never, it's never going to be a novel. Um, 
it was, that was a huge relief. And it was really funny because, you know, all these people were, you know, I think I wrote about it on Facebook or something and everybody was like, Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, that is a really tough moment. And I was like, Oh my God, are you kidding me? It was, that was the fucking best moment of my life. Like, cause it was so, it was getting to be so onerous and I was just hating everything about it. And feeling like a fool when I sat down to write it and, you know, realizing I had bitten off more than I could chew. And, you know, so the day that I decided to get rid of it was so happy. I was like, Oh, thank God. Yeah, It's a relief. I mean, that's like, that also seems to be a signal that you made the right decision. But I think for some people, yeah. it's like a struggle of knowing like, when's the moment to walk away? Do you, you know, do you, are you turning away too early? Could it have been resolved if you just would have stuck with it or, you know, uh, maybe it's a, you know, a, a, a fantastic thing to drop it and to know when it's just not working, you know? So it's just, it's hard to negotiate. Yeah. That moment yeah. Sometimes, you know? No, it's true. And I definitely didn't want to, you know, I felt a lot of, I talked to my writer friends and I felt, you know, I didn't want to give up and I didn't want to feel like a quitter about it. And, you know, everybody says, Oh, there are these moments where, you know, your book, it, you just got to push through. And, you know, I sort of, I think I started to realize, you know, once it was just not, fun at all but that was sort of the moment that I had to just give it up because you know if I wasn't having fun and I didn't feel like it was any good I mean I don't do this for money I do this for love and I do it because I love it and what on earth would be the point of just doing something for for that was so painful for no reason well but you know and you say that it's like I think it's I think it's probably and tell me if you agree but I think it's probably counterproductive to ever do creative writing for money or at least in terms of how, oh. how it works on your soul. Like yeah. there are people who make a good living writing fiction or writing nonfiction or whatever it is. And you know, there's not a lot of them percentage wise relative to all the people that are out here doing this. But right. you know, when you sit down to work, uh, I would imagine, especially if there are like commercial expectations placed on you, you know what I'm saying? If like people, oh, are, like, yeah, you know, people, yeah. if people are waiting for your next book and you've had some big bestseller or something, you know, you're probably sitting there going, okay, I got to, you know, this is what I'm doing now. I, you've probably quit your day job and this is your job. And so you need to keep the, the checks coming in. But I feel like if you sit down with, with money on your brain, when you try to do something creative, it just pollutes the process and mucks it up. But yet at the same time, it's, it's hard. I think, uh, especially, I mean, I don't know. It, it's, I don't mean in any way to diminish short stories, but I'm just saying when you, when you sit down to write a novel, it's hard mm -hmm. not to think about things like what if it gets made into a movie or, do you, do you know what I'm saying? Just, <laughs> right, right, right. You can, no, I think that's I, I think a novel might lend itself towards delusions of grandeur a little bit more than a story collection. Like there's something like – there's a humility yeah. in, in, in short stories that might not exist in the novel or something, you know? Right. Well, it's sort of a forced humility too, right? Because, you know, you're always told, oh, God, no one wants a short story collection. Right. No exactly. one reads – so that's even more monetarily unacceptable. <laughs> right. like, and the, the only thing that I think exceeds it is like poetry. Like, you know, I'm writing this. Oh, right. I'm, oh, God, yes. I'm writing this poetry collection. Like, that's the ultimate humility. You know, it's. Uh... <laughs> right, right. But, you know, I can't. I, I, I have heard enough to tell people you're a writer. I can't. For my poet friends, I can't imagine like saying to someone like at my work or something like I'm a poet. I can't imagine what their face would look like. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I guess like a, a related point or a point that I'm trying to drive at is that the fact that you sit down to do this work and you do it for the love of the game and you're not thinking in any way that this is going to be how I one day make my living uh, sort of purifies the creative process, I would imagine. 
Yeah. And, you know, I think about online literature in particular, and I think about like the indie lit scene and all of its various permutations as it exists online. And I think about what, like, I think to myself, you know, what about this is so attractive because it is undeniably attractive to me. And I find myself energized by it in ways that I'm not energized by stuff that's coming out from big houses a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot mm-hmm. of, a lot of the time. And, uh, I, I've been wondering myself, you know, wondering to myself why. And the other night I was having, uh, dinner with uh, a buddy of mine, Ben Laurie, who's a writer. Yay! Uh, yeah. Yes, I love Ben. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he and I were sitting there and I was expressing this to him and he looked at me and he said, uh, you know why you like it? And I was like, why? And he's like, because they're having fun. And yep. it was like a light one on my head. I was like, yeah, that's right. They're actually having fun. You know, like they're making like the, oh. they're making the making of literature fun and they're not taking it too yeah. seriously. And I think that's the thing. And it's so easy in like heavyweight publishing and among writers who uh, ex- exist in that world to be too serious. And to, and, and I don't mean that you don't take the work seriously, but it's like a little bit of too much self-seriousness or a little bit too much weight of commercial expectation or trying to say the big thing or trying to be a cultural force or whatever the, whatever it is. But I feel that and it repels me. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. No, I absolutely do. I mean, I think, you know, I talk to people who in my, in my sort of real everyday life that, that don't write. And, you know, I try to explain to them, like, for instance, this year, um, partially because of the book, all of my vacation this year, I've taken, um, I've taken for writing, uh, including, I, you know, I've taken a little bit of time to just like, I always take a writing vacation every year, um, you know, just to sit down and write kind of like a little sabbatical. And, uh, you know, I, I took some time to go to like AWP and, you know, I'm doing some readings and things. And they're always so mystified by this. They're like, but, you know, you're taking all of your vacation to work. Yeah. And it's like, that, this is not work. This is like, this is fun. And I wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun. Like, it, I just wouldn't. The day that it stops being fun, I would stop doing it. Yeah, but it also, you know, what it also makes me think of is it makes me think that, like, uh, you have the bug. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I had somebody ask, or I, have, yeah. I actually, I often have people ask, uh, about like, you know, how should I get my MFA or my writer, blah, blah, blah. And I think I just talked about this on a recent episode of the show in the monologue where I was like, look, if you're, if you have the bug to do this, like there's no stopping it. And it, you're proof positive yeah. because you're working this nine to five day job and you know, you're taking your vacation time to write. Like that's, that's it right there in a nutshell. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't think it's it's not some like tortured sort of thing where, you know, I, I have to write, I can't stop, I have to get it down on the page, but it's, you know, it's definitely a, a I, I'm missing something fun and exciting in my life if I'm not doing that. Um, when I actually go, I hate like, going on vacation where I actually go somewhere and don't write for like two weeks. That just, then it's like, there's something fun that's missing. Wow. <laughs> if that makes any sense. See, I think I might be more yeah. tortured than you. I might be more tortured. But do, do you find that if you don't do the writing on the weekends or you don't, you know, if you go for a while without getting to work, does it change your mood at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it definitely, I feel, I feel guilty and I feel like, you know, I don't, like I, I have so much sort of built up in my brain that I have to, you know, s- scrape out and get onto the page. I mean, I definitely feel like that. Um, 
uh, it's not necessarily like a tortured feeling, but, um, but I definitely feel like I'm missing something that's, that's fun and exciting. Um, and that I want to get back to you as soon as possible, you know? Yeah. I just, I, I find myself just feeling like a little edgy in ways that I can't like quite articulate. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, I feel like I just, huh. yeah, it's like a ventilation process and I'm sure that's sort of what you, you know, or a decompression process somehow when you're getting, all yeah, yeah. I think that's true. I mean, I guess, yeah, edgy is, edgy is not a bad way to describe it. I mean, I might get a little crabby. I don't know. <laughs> you seem really well adjusted, you, you know. I think, you know, that... I, <laughs> you, you're approaching that's interesting. It, it means, yeah, but, you know, to, to approach it as a fun and exciting thing, that's refreshing to me, you know, because there is a lot of torturedness in the world of writing that I think might be... <laughs> that might be a, a component of the whole, uh, you know, not fun part of it, you know? Yes. Well, I think, I think I've sort of been lucky because, um, you know, for so long, I just, I just didn't think writing would ever be something that would be part of my life again. And, um, and you know, I never, I don't have an MFA and I don't, I don't sort of have that like need that some people have to, to, you know, get a book out in the world or do this or do that or whatever. Like to me, it is just, it's, it's more than a hobby. It's a passion, but, but it also is something that I do on the side for fun. And so I feel like a lot less pressure than I think a lot of people do, because for me, it's just, it's, I feel very lucky that I've been able to do it. And it's been sort of a joy and a privilege. I know that sounds really corny, but like, you know, it's, it's not sort of a thing like, well, I went to school for this. And so now I should be, I should have a novel out and I should be doing this and that. Like it doesn't, I mean, I have plans, but they're not, you know, it's not quite in the same way that I think some people have planned or that some people feel that pressure. Well, it doesn't sound like it's as central to your identity as it might be to some people, you know, your sense of identity. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's, I think that's true. I mean, not to say that, Um, like not to say that your creative uh, work isn't part of who you are, but I just think that like maybe it's not, you know, this huge majority of who, of how you conceptualize yourself. Do you know what I'm saying? And I think for, yeah, some, no, I think that's true. And I think for some people, and I think, you know, for all people, uh, if you lose your sense of identity, it's actually extraordinarily traumatic. So people will cling to whatever it happens to be. Uh, you know, however, yeah. however a person defines themselves, I think is obviously very important to them. And if you, that, if that starts to crumble in any way, it can be, you know, very difficult. And so for people who kind of like stick their sword in the ground and say, I'm a writer, uh, you know, then the, and I know this firsthand, then like you start telling people you're a writer and you're working on a novel and it's both like the most, (laughs) it's it's like the most foolish thing you can ever do. And the best thing you can ever do because, uh, it makes you accountable and it publicizes. Yeah. And then suddenly like every, you know, every year people are asking you about how your novel is coming along. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, (laughs) And it becomes the, there's the pressure to publish. And then once you've published, there's the, pre- the pressure to publish again and to get better and to build the list, and to, <laughs> you know, all that stuff starts to happen. And, um, you know, I think it can drain away some of the fun aspect. And I think the more playful you can be about it and the less serious you can take yourself in the process, probably the better off you are. I think that's true. And I think, and it's not to say, by the way, that I don't, um, I don't, you know, obviously when I actually sit down to write, then I take it very seriously. Then it's deadly serious, you know? Um, but, uh, and, and when I'm actually doing the work and, and, and doing the revision and everything like that, it's absolutely, it's like surgery. It's, you know, I'm absolutely focused on it. Um, but yeah, I think the, the attitude about it is where I think, you know, being a little bit more casual or relaxed can actually be helpful. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, no, I think so. I think so. And I, I think that, uh, you know, getting there to that state of feeling more relaxed about it is the trick. And I guess with you, it, I mean, uh, I don't want to oversimplify it, but do you feel like it comes naturally or it's just a natural outgrowth of the way that you've structured your professional life? Or do you think that, is there some, yeah, is, yeah. There, is there some trick? I think that's true. I mean, I always feel sort of sorry for people that, you know, tell me that, that, that seem to expect to make money doing this, you know, that seem like seem to make, want to, you know, predicate their, not necessarily that they're not going to teach or do something else like that's different, but people that actually sort of think that they're going to make a living doing this. I just, I feel sort of sorry for them. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that's, that, that makes this something else that makes this, that makes this, um, I guess necessary in a way that it isn't for me. Um, well, it also, not that it won't always be part of my life, but yeah. Well, no, but it's just such a tall order statistically speaking. And, um, you know, it's one, yeah. of the, it's, it's one of the central questions in, I know in my writing life and I think in a lot of people's lives in publishing, uh, you know, at every level is just, how does it work? What makes a book go? You know, how come some books mm-hmm. take off and other books don't like what, how does it happen? And, uh, I've asked the question repeatedly, like to myself on this show, uh, in talking to friends over the years and, you know, there's a, a huge mystery to it. And I think ultimately the mm-hmm. best I can, the best I can tell you is word of mouth, you know? Uh, but the, yeah, yeah. But, but the overriding point, uh, you know, is that you don't have a ton of control, uh, if any. Yep. And so to walk into it, expecting to make money is expecting to control something you can't control really. <laughs> yep. That's uh, yeah. so true. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, to get, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful though, if somehow your book caught on like that and suddenly you're able to make this fabulous living doing this, like that's such a lucky ride to get my goodness. Oh, right. And believe me, when I say that, I would never, you know, I would certainly never turn that down. <laughs> that That's a very different matter. But, um, but yeah, I don't expect it to happen either. So if, if that, but I mean, if your book did start to take off, would you quit your job in a heartbeat or is it something that you would be painful to leave? Oh, my, it would be painful to leave. I think, I don't know that I could ever, um, or at least, you know, <laughs> I would have to make a lot, a lot of money. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, what about, uh, political aspirations? Like, are you ever going to run for office? You know, I, I, most of the time I say that sounds like the worst thing I could ever imagine. Um, but you know, never say never. Maybe wow. I will someday. That's a non-denial. <laughs> I just got a non-denial. It's a non-denial. Of- Wow. So you, you might, never know what, okay. So let's just, you know, just to, uh, fantasize a little bit, like what would the ideal office for you be? Like, I mean, like w- what is the scale of your ambition? Like, do you have presidential ambitions or is it more like, I would love to be a state Senator or uh, a representative in the house of representatives? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Do you have any kind of vision? Like, like, do you want to be the next Paul Wellstone, you know, of, well, I always feel like if you're going to do something, the scale of your ambition should be the highest that it could possibly be. So I w- if I was ever going to go into politics, I would have presidential ambitions. Absolutely. Wow. Well, I think that's a, that's a, that's a good note to end on right there. We might be seeing one day a, a presidential run by uh, Amber Sparks. Never say never. All right. Well, listen, I have, uh, I've so enjoyed talking with you. Congratulations on the book. Best of luck at the launch. And, uh, are you going on a little bit of a miniature tour after this, or is it just the launch party in Chicago and then back to DC? Uh, no, it's a little bit of a tour in the Midwest. Um, I'll be in Chicago, then I'll be in uh, Minneapolis. Um, 
I'll be in uh, uh, at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and then I'll be in Indianapolis uh, before I head back to D.C. So. Wow. Well, enjoy it, and uh, best of luck. And th- oh, th- thanks so much for talking with thank me. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, everybody, we did it. That's the show. That is Amber Sparks. Go get her new story collection. It is called May We Shed These Human Bodies. It is out there now, available from Curbside Splendor. You can find Amber on the web at ambernoelsparks.com. She's on the Facebook, and her Twitter handle is at anoel. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. And, hey, if you like the program and you would like to uh, throw down a few bucks to help keep it rolling, please visit otherpeoplepod.com and click on Donate in the right sidebar. Uh, the show has a Twitter feed, at Other People Pod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. If you would like to peruse my personal tweeting, the show also has a Facebook presence. And if you would like to email me and let me know your thoughts, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, while you're at it, be sure to check out thenervousbreakdown.com. That is my online culture magazine and literary community. You can join the book club. Uh, for nine ninety nine a month, that gets you a new book every thirty days. Or you can check out some of the books on our TNB Books imprint. Uh, pick up a copy of the beautiful anthology. That's a collection of essays and stories and poems edited by Elizabeth Collins. Or, or get uh, my my dead pets are interesting, a humor collection by Lenore Zion. Or how about Subversia, an essay collection by D R Haney, or Paper Doll Orgy, a cartoon collection by Ted McCagg. All of these titles are available in print and ebook editions wherever books are sold online. Please remember that Zora Neale Hurston died in a welfare home and that Thomas Mann died of phlebitis. Uh, that is all for now. I will be back again soon with another episode. I think you know that. I think you know how this works at this point. Oh, and while I'm thinking about it, please remember to rate and review the show at iTunes if you have a couple of minutes. That really does help the cause, and it will earn you my undying love. Uh, okay, that's all for now. I'm going to leave you... You are now on your own. I'm going away, but I will come back and I will talk into this microphone some more for reasons that I'm not entirely clear about. Uh, And that's the irony. This is me uh, creating culture. Uh, This is me acting essentially like Lardass Hogan. This is me regurgitating pie.